Father, thank you for another day to be able to gather with your people, the church assembled, the bride together, and we trust, uh, as your word reveals so clearly, that there is, uh, in moments where the church is gathered, something of your, a special expression of your presence, ministry of your word, uh, deepening of Christ-like sanctification that happens in a way that we otherwise would not be able to benefit just by ourselves or uh, even in serious meditation and contemplation like we're going to think about this morning in this session. So thank you for this privilege to gather. We pray for the classes uh, that are surrounding us. Pray that the children would be wrought upon by your Spirit through your Word to have a conception of your majesty and of your mercy. Pray for the teenagers as they study your Word, Lord, that you would minister to them deeply, form and shape their minds and hearts uh, to go far beyond us when they're at our stage of life, that you would be setting that foundation for them now to live for you all their days and bless us as we think about abiding with Christ in your word through meditation and prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, happy Mother's Day to all of our moms, and uh, we're so thankful for each and every one of you. And for uh, all of us are, are, are the product of moms, and we're so thankful for the investment that they all have made in our lives. Mother's Day, which I'll just mention in, a, in, in another way in our service that follows. I'm our service leader today. Pastor Nathan's preaching, so we'll, we'll want to pray for him. But Mother's Day comes with a mix of ranges of emotions and experience, and for some it's a day of great bliss, and for others it's a day of great you know, challenge and sorrow, so we want to be sensitive to that. There are uh, sisters who aspire to be moms and those who have had deep valleys of loss. So let's, let's be sensitive to the, to the joys and the sorrows of our sisters, and uh, we are thankful for each one of you. And in the most bizarre way, uh, happy Mother's Day to all the men, because uh, the Lord, speaking of pastors in particular, Paul, using himself as an example, said, um, as a nursing mother, we prove to be tender among you. Uh, so may our brothers get in touch with their motherly call <laughs> to be tender and to serve the Lord's people in a way that meets them where they're at and ministers to them in their deep need. Well, there's my mother's day. Welcome. We're continuing our Core Doctrines series. This is, so we're in Article 11, and it's the second week. Uh, how many lessons have we had? If we're in Article 11, it's our second week. Close. We have had, yeah, we have had 31. This is, this is Lesson 32 in our Systematic Theology journey, and uh, Part 2 is always our historical look. So that's where we're at today. Last week, we looked at the biblical theology on living God's Word by meditation and prayer. Today, we'll look just a little bit at a historical theology. This is more of a practical, doctrinal article. Uh, so the historical theology uh, has a little bit to offer, but we'll mainly look at a biblical approach to this doctrine. Then next week, Stephen Chipman, Lord willing, will lead us in our practical application. So historical theology... Article 11, part two, which makes it 
our 32nd installment in this series, <laughs> reads this. We believe that faith is awakened and sustained by God's Spirit through His Word and prayer. The good fight of faith is fought mainly by meditating on the Scriptures and praying that God would apply them to our souls. We believe that the promises of God recorded in the Scriptures are suited to save us from the deception of sin by displaying for us and holding out to us superior pleasures in the protection, provision, and presence of God. Therefore, reading, understanding, pondering, memorizing, and savoring the promises of all that God will be for us in Jesus are primary means of the Holy Spirit to break the power of sin's deceitful promises in our lives. Therefore, it is needful that we give ourselves to such meditation day and night. We believe that God has ordained to bless and use His people for His glory through the means of prayer offered in Jesus' name by faith. All prayer should seek ultimately that God's name be hallowed and that His kingdom come and that His will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. God's sovereignty over all things is not a hindrance to prayer, but a reason for hope that our prayers will succeed. Finally, we believe that prayer is the indispensable handmaid of meditation as we cry out to God for the inclination to turn from the world to the Word and for the spiritual ability to see the glory of God in His testimonies and for a soul-satisfying sight of the love of God and for strength in the inner man to do the will of God. By prayer, God sanctifies His people sends gospel laborers into the world, and causes the Word of God to spread and triumph over Satan and unbelief. Well, <clears throat> this article, different than some of the kind of densely detailed theological articles we've looked at in the first 10 points of this affirmation of faith, this one is just highly practical. Um, it's not, I don't think in any way, controversial to a regenerate heart. Just, yes, I need the Word, and I need prayer, but I need a prayer-soaked life in the Word. And uh, so just, you know, at the heart we're affirming, we're not good at reading our Bible, and we can't get it on our own. And we don't have spiritual illumination just because we study syntax and grammar and linguistics. This is a living and active book. It's a God-breathed book, Scripture. And as such, we need the Holy Spirit who inspired it to illumine to our mind and to our hearts the truths that are there and to apply them to our souls. At the same time, it's, God has been pleased to reveal Himself in a non-superstitious way. So while prayer says, is the indispensable handmaid of meditation, top two lines, indispensable. You can't meditate biblically without prayer. It's not superstition. You don't have to conjure yourself up into some kind of spiritual something 
to get into a place where the words of the Word make sense. The Bible is, uh, we believe in the doctrine of perspicuity, that the Bible is written because God intends for it to be understood. It's written in human language that even unregenerate people can read and understand at one level. But we want these truths applied deeply to our souls, so we want not only to understand them by human uh, capacities, but by Holy Spirit application. So as we think historically, throughout the 2,000 plus years since the incarnation of Christ, and all the time prior that God was revealing Himself through the Word written, Scripture being written and then compiled. There's kind of two big ways that I can see that meditation has been thought about. One, antithetical to Scripture, and one in accord with Scripture. Got to be a lot of nuance under both of these, but I want to give you some historical approaches to meditation and prayer, and then biblical instruction related to meditation and prayer. Uh, historically, I'm just going to mention one big category. I think a ton of things fit under this. I have some notes in my own little gadget here that won't be presented on the screen that I'll try to mention, but I do want to open uh, during this entire session for some dialogue. So if you have something that you want to add or ask, then today is a perfect day just to stop me, raise your hand, interject, and uh, add or ask for further clarity. You guys have heard of transcendental meditation. That would be an antithetical approach to Scripture. Let me read the slide. It comes from Alan Carnes' Dictionary of Theological Ter Terms, Transcendental Meditation. And then I want us to think about this for just a moment and try to think a little bit about how this is manifesting itself. There are no new lies. Satan just repackages old lies. I want us to think about how this is manifesting itself in Christendom today. And I think this is antithetical to biblical meditation, not compatible. Transcendental meditation, Carnes writes, according to this view of meditation, peace and serenity can be had only if one proceeds beyond the normal states of consciousness, sleep, dreaming, wakefulness, to a fourth state. What would that be? One must learn to meditate so that he may transcend to the state of, quote, pure bliss consciousness, a state of pure awareness in which he is turned into creative intelligence. Sounds like some kind of uh, linguistic mumbo-jumbo. Let me get my cursor to my own screen. Where did this come from, and what does this look like? I don't know if you guys have... Uh, felt like I often have, and I've expressed it just like this, my own self. Man, I feel like I'm not getting much out of my quiet time. Or um, the worship service didn't really, you know, minister to me deeply. You may not put it that way. You may say, I didn't get a lot out of the worship service. Well, uh, one great response to that is, that's okay. We weren't worshiping you anyway. Same with the Word. A as you privately 
are meditating on the Word, Karl Barth would say that book on your shelf that we call the Bible contains the Word of God. I think there's some problems with that description because I would say we believe, I believe, it is the Word of God. Whether you feel warm fuzzies or not in your meditation, this is God's voice. Theopneustos. This is a breathed out voice of God. The words of Scripture are the words of God. So transcendental meditation. Where, where does this... Where does this idea come from of uh, pure bliss consciousness? That's a little quoted phrase there, which is basically emptying your mind of all thought and reaching some state of nirvana and bliss. Well, it comes from ancient Hinduism, as far back as we can trace it, but it's pantheistic. It actually turns the self into the deity because you kind of get in touch with yourself as you most deeply meditate and lose consciousness. It's really a form of self-worship. Popularized in, the, in, our day, in our country recently, in the 60s and 70s, through all, all manner of means, uh, one Hindu divine uh, whose name is Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, an Indian guru, attracted a ton of public support from all kinds of celebrities in the 60s, Western celebrities in the 60s and 70s, uh, musicians, athletes, movie stars, said things like this, peace and serenity can be had only if one proceeds beyond the normal states of consciousness and then uses these categories, sleep, dreaming, wakefulness. Why should I explain this thought even this much. Why, why are we even talking about this in a Christian church? Quote, transcendental meditation became popular in the hippie movement. Its basic theory is now integral to New Age philosophy. So something happened, and it's been happening in every generation. It's not, you know, again, nothing new under the sun, no new lies. But something happened in, I would say, the Second Great Awakening. Western U.S. evangelicalism, especially Finneyism, Charles Finney, if you guys are familiar with that name, where a focus shifted that I think is still very prominent today from corporate to individual. And today, Westerners still think of their relationship with God very individualistically, me and Jesus. And we say around here phrases that are super loaded, and we say them a lot on purpose. Your relationship with God is very personal, but it is not private. And I want to get you off the hook a little bit. It's okay if your quiet time is not awesome. I don't want to diminish daily Bible reading and prayer. That's all the rest of our slides. But I do want to say this. Not one, not one, not one, not one, not one person you've ever read about in the Bible had a Bible. None of them. They didn't sit down Monday morning before they took off to work 
and open a leather-bound copy of 66 books of the Bible and do what we often think of for our quiet time. Functionally, I think they did the same thing. Deep meditation on Scripture. Prayer-filled meditation on God's words. But so much of this individualistic concept of the Christian life that's so prevalent today is kind of the aftermath of what the Second Great Awakening brought upon us and got popularized in the hippie movement and the Jesus movement and so many other things. I think God in His immense benevolence Endless benevolence has in ways blessed. People have truly come to Christ. They're really regenerate. They want to walk with the Lord. But they have a, I think, almost self-centered understanding of what it means for them to engage with God's Word. Put it another way, I think Hillary Clinton got it wrong. It takes a village to raise a child. Uh, that's, that's not true. I think she wanted our kids in a way. You know, government, uh, you know, conscription of our kids or something like that. But it does take a church to raise a Christian. Sanctification is a community project. How do you know that you and Jesus having an ethereal moment actually accords with what all Christians have thought about that same passage that you're meditating on? The answer is just hang around a lot of Christians in a meaningful way, I would say a covenanted way, for the rest of your life. And over time, God will rub the rough edges off and refine you. But it's like watching the grass grow and the paint dry. You don't see it happening, but you're being shaped by the Word over time in a way that's consistent with church history. So, um, let's see. So, transcendental meditation, isolationist Christianity, me and Jesus privately, is quite different from what we find when you just do a quick word search of meditation in Scripture. Uh, so, going back, biblical instruction related to meditation and prayer, and I only actually have a few more slides, so if you do have comments, questions, additions, then that would be fantastic. Martin Mansard. Dictionary of Biblical Themes says biblical meditation is this, spending time drawing close to God and listening to Him, pondering on His Word, His creation, His mighty works, or other aspects of His self-revelation. God makes Himself known, you think deeply about that. Ponder. Dwell. Philippians 4, think on these things. Be taken up, Paul says, take pains with these things. Um, so, uh, in uh, another resource, uh, an Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church, meditation has a range of meanings in, in Scripture. Let me give you three of them. The recitation, reciting, or memorizing of scriptural text. So you're on purpose trying to lock God's words into your cranium. And you're being as careful as you can to be as verbatim as possible in your memorization. But that's not the end, getting the words of the Word into your brain. It is second, causing, uh, allowing these words to cause 
Godward thoughts in your mind all throughout the day leading you to spontaneous prayers and praises, ponderings that are based on the words of the Word. That's part of meditation. And third, the application of your mind, including your imagination, running into the territory of Scripture, allowing the truths of the faith, the truths of the Christian faith, to draw you particularly to Christ with a view to stirring intense response and affections to the Lord Jesus to become more and more like Him. That would be a summary, I think, faithful of biblical meditation. In all these senses, biblical meditation includes prayer, over the words of the Word. In fact, many of the biblical texts are themselves prayers. 150 Psalms would be one example. And we can take up these prayers and it, the, the Christian truth then sharpens our own awareness of the types of things that we should engage with God about. So we come to Him on the basis of His revelation to us of Himself rather than starting with our own self. We start with revelation and then response to God, causing us, it shapes our prayers, it shapes our thinking about God. Then finally, um, skip, skip, skip. Here it is. Holman Illustrated uh, Bible Dictionary. Biblical meditation is the act of calling to mind some supposition, pondering on it, correlating it to one's own life. Everybody meditates. Everybody. The question is, on what do you meditate? The wicked man, Proverbs 24 meditates on violence, things that are destructive to himself and to others. They may not be able to draw the line between the dots, but for example, people are taken up who are taken up with, uh, you know, immoral, illicit sexual fantasy. It's very self-harming, and it's harmful to other people. Begin to objectify everything around you. That's a violent meditation. It's actually self-destructive and it's others harming. And lost people are meditating all the time. Again, the question is, upon what do we meditate? The righteous person, the second bullet point, contemplates God and his great spiritual truths. And then all the scripture references that are listed refer to this type of biblical Christian meditation, Psalm 63 and 77. Even Psalm 19 says, the way the believer hopes to please God is by meditation. Let the words of my mouth. That's a prayer. Allow this to happen. Allow the meditation of my heart to be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So the last line, meditation by God's people, is a reverent act of worship. Through it, they commune with God and are thereby renewed spiritually. If you haven't connected the dot yet, one of the main things I wanted to say today is that's what 
Christian congregational church gatherings are. It's one gigantic effort every week to say, you've had, I forget, I can't do the math now, but uh, however many hours are in a week, what's that number? Uh, I used to just be able to spout it off, but now I can't multiply. Hundred sixty-eight, hundred twenty, somewhere in there, <laughs> give or take. What is it? What it? Matt got the calculator out. One sixty-eight. It is. Listen to this, friends. For two precious hours, two and a half precious hours a week, we're trying to go vertical. You are deluged. You are flooded, minute by minute, hour by hour with temporal things. And for two hours of the 168, we're trying to do congregational meditation. As, I believe, a divinely ordained means, ordinary means of grace, to shape the rest of our life. We don't bring God our heart full of praise and worship. We come to be filled by Him. So that we enter into a week. Sunday's the first day. We come to rest in Christ in hope and prayer, even as we come to the Lord's table, help me, Lord, to live in light of these great truths. Help me to walk with this Jesus that I've just heard about. So my last slide, uh, before three recommended readings, is that psalm. Do you see how this is a prayer? This is a request? This is a petition? Allow this to happen, Lord. Allow the words that are in my mouth Allow the deep meditation in my heart that nobody sees but you to be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock, that's the immutable God, and my Redeemer, I believe a foretaste of the Messiah, Christ, to live in the presence of God in Christ in an acceptable way, uh, deeply meditating on, on His Word. Okay, next week, Stephen's going to give us just practical application. You know, what does this look like personally, uh, maybe corporately? Let me give three recommended readings. I do this just about every month. I realize giving, you know, three or four or five recommended books a month, you know, that's impossible for anybody to, to, to probably grab them all, but maybe one throughout the year. I cannot commend these highly enough. Uh, Don Whitney, Praying the Bible, it's a small little book. Um, said that he believes that's why God put him on earth, to be able to contribute not just that book, but to that, that uh, joyful biblical spiritual discipline and to help others grow in it. Praying the Bible, Don Whitney, it's fantastic, it's really small. The second one, D.A. Carson's got retitled, they flipped the subtitle and the main title, it's now called Praying with Paul. I don't know if you can see the subtitle, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. That used to be the main title. They repackaged it. But it's all Paul's prayers in the New Testament. What does he pray for? What types of things does he ask God for? And, and how corresponding is my prayer life to the kinds of things Paul prayed for? For what it's worth, uh, our prayer guide this week that Asha put up, uh, Chris Fleming was one of the names. All week I've been praying, let him walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please you in all respects. That's been my prayer for Chris. I didn't make it up. God wrote it. That's Colossians chapter 1. 
The last one, if I had to pick one, said, where do I start? Or what would be a Jordan recommended? It would be John Anwin Chekwa's prayer. The subtitle is How Praying Together Shapes the Church. One of the little nine marks building healthy churches series titles, but it de-individualizes prayer. Part of the reason we're not good at prayer and meditation is we try to do it all by ourselves. And how good and pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity, uh, but to walk together. Uh, when faithful came alongside Christian in Pilgrim's Progress on the way to the celestial city, when Christian was just pummeled and discouraged and couldn't hardly, he kept wandering off the path, going down the wrong trails and getting his eyes off of Christ and off of eternal things. Here comes faithful, walks beside him. Guess what happens to Christian? His eyes get riveted back to the celestial city, to the heavenly things, to eternal things. And part of the reason we're not good at prayer and meditation, we try to do it by ourselves. Find a brother or sister to memorize a passage of Scripture with you. Find a brother or sister that can be a regular prayer partner or a cluster of people with you. And corporately as we do that. Okay, um, I'll stop there. Oh, should say historical. That's our little look at uh, meditation and prayer. Reflections, comments, questions, additions. Ben, here, brother. I don't want to steal Stephen's thunder for next week, but uh, if you're memorizing a passage, even with another brother or sister, do you have recommendations for how to make sure you're understanding that passage correctly? Uh, Stephen, I don't know if you heard that question. Uh, if you're memorizing a passage, uh, even with another brother or sister, you know, to help ensure, how do we help ensure we're understanding the passage correctly? Um, what would you guys say? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, somebody? Yeah, please. Here, will you be a runner, Ben? Uh, the first thing that popped in my mind was that knowing the context of what, who, the, who the audience was, who the, or the context of what it, where it was written, why, to whom, um, just the practical behind the scenes, why. So. This is sort of a non-answer to the question, but maybe it will be encouraging. There are passages of Scripture that I memorized like 10, 12 years ago, and then 10, 12s later, reviewing that old passage, you realize, oh, for the last 10 or 12 years, I did not understand what this meant. And it is okay for that to happen. I don't think I would have come later to an understanding of that passage had I not memorized it 10 years earlier. So press on without full and exhaustive understanding. Um, so, something that, that comes to mind is, is that the, uh, the fear of misinterpreting a passage of Scripture can be paralyzing to the point that you fail to ever make application to your life because we're just so worried. I just, man, am I getting this right? I don't want to get it wrong. And, and, and I just want to say just that the, the, the most obvious answer to that is the very thing we just heard. How do I know that I'm not misinterpreting this passage of Scripture? Or how can I be helped in knowing, aside from all of the things about biblical interpretation, to not do it by yourself, 
in your own little bubble with your own little perspectives and own little viewpoints, but getting with another brother and furthermore, lots of other brothers and sisters and furthermore, extending that out to church history. We, we, we have a tremendous freedom to approach God's word boldly because we're surrounded by brothers and sisters who have gone before us and who are with us right now who are helping us, who we can go to that brother that we've been meditating this um, or memorizing this passage of scripture with for however long and say, brother, man, I'm seeing this. Am I on track here or is this off base? Looking, looking into church history, are we on track here or do we have some wild reading of this scripture that nobody else has ever heard of? And so, so we, we ought to just get with other Christians and get into God's word and God's spirit amongst you is going is to give lots of grace and help for understanding his word. Uh, it is, like the brother said, uh, uh, discipleship is the key, and we want to, I can't think of the name, this is uh, brothers and sisters, now what are they thinking, and what am I correctly uh, getting the context? And uh, commentaries, uh, five or ten commentaries, is this correct or what? Thank you, thank you. I know much more could be said, added, or other categories asked. I want to close with uh, a, a response to that question Ben asked for myself. Um, floating around here, I've been looking for it. It's been given, passed along to Blake Pugh, is a gigantic bag of Psalms commentaries because Blake is one of six writers, five writers, for our next Teleos series, Psalms Book 1, Part 2, chapters 23 through 41. And those five writers each have a big stack of commentaries. They're not inspired, but they help. I'm not even suggesting we've always got it right in our own teleos commentary writing. I'm sure we have not. Part of the way I'm sure of that is I've written a couple of the volumes myself, and I disagree with things I've written. But like Matt said, over time, it becomes more and more clear. Uh, so I've got to say one thing as, as, as even people are coming in and the classes have closed. Ripping verses out of context is the surest way to misunderstand them. The Bible says this, Judas hung himself. The Bible says go and do likewise. The Bible says what you do, do quickly. Okay, it'd be a very bad way to interpret the Bible. I memorized Psalm 16 as a college student, brand new Christian. I've prayed it my whole life since then. 10 years later, I realized, though I'd read the passage plenty of times, just didn't pay enough attention, Peter quoted Psalm 16 in Acts 2. And Peter said, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke writing, the whole psalm is about Jesus. Acts 2.25 says, he says, Jesus, and then it goes on, in your presence there's fullness of joy, at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore, so on and so forth. So, again, don't be crippled by the fear of misinterpreting it. 
as Matt said, just dwell in the word and over time it'll reshape you. It may take you a decade, that's fine. Uh, but if you don't start, you'll, you'll never get more and more clear understandings. So uh, here's my concluding comment. What passage of scripture are you currently memorizing? And if you don't have an answer to that, today would be a very good day to pick one. And the good news is there are no bad options. Just pick one and work on it. Okay? Lord, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this church. Pray that you would help us together to grow in Christ's likeness and like Aquila and Priscilla, teach Apollos the way of God more accurately. Uh, even as we serve you, we all need help and we pray that you would use our brothers and sisters to help us and use church history to help us and uh, other faithful believers to help us to grow in both understanding and applying your word and especially letting it be a catalyst for our communion with you in prayer, and meditation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We have six minutes, short break.